my name is Josh Ellen. Uh, this is um, Launching Missional Communities. That's the name of our breakout this morning. Uh, so let me read the description to you for the recording purposes. <clears throat> Everyone still hearing me okay? Like in the back, it's okay if you can't. I screamed so hard for Maggie yesterday when she was dancing that by the time worship came around, like I couldn't even I couldn't even give glory to the Lord properly. Um, so being missional requires you to anthropologically understand your mission field, learn how to discern needs of your campus, and how to launch faith groups that live life together while filling the felt needs you discover. So, uh, hopefully you already knew that. You're here. By the way, any uh, Clemson fans? Cool. So I'm from the University of Alabama. Uh, Katie, my wife, and I have been there for four years now. And um, we've seen God do amazing things. Um, specifically in in way of developing culture. And really, if I were going to rebrand uh, the title of, of this, let me actually make sure I hit record. I did, okay. Paranoid now. Uh, if I were to rebrand uh, this breakout, it would be something like uh, affecting culture through discipleship. So if, you, if you're taking notes and you want to, to really get the main point of what we're talking about uh, this morning, affecting culture through discipleship. So, um, Katie and I, while we were, were visiting different universities and, and trying to uh, trying to really discern uh, where the Lord was leading us, and uh, so we were at the University of Alabama, we're sitting on the quad, and we're just watching students go by and we're praying. And, uh, and we began to see things <clears throat> with, with spiritual eyes. Okay, so just using discernment and we're... We're looking at all these students go by. We already know a little bit of the culture here um, or there at the University of Alabama. And we just began to see the brokenness on our campus um, and, and saw students who, who didn't really know who they were. They're searching for identity. They're searching for acceptance. Uh, they're looking for purpose. And, and if you visit our campus, I'm sure it's like this at your campus. In fact, I know it is. Um, there are a lot of counterfeits out there, right? There are a lot of things that look like the real thing. They promise the same thing, but they don't really have the substance of it, right? A lot of things look like community, but, but really uh, community is missing, like true community that we find in the kingdom of God. And so ours began to break for the University of Alabama, and praise the Lord, uh, he allowed us to go there. And so now we've committed our lives to the University of Alabama, and, and one of our passions is to see the cultures that, that don't line up with the kingdom of God on our campus to change. Now, the University of Alabama has a population of about 40,000 students. So uh, it's, a, it's a big university. Uh, I went to school with about 12,000 students. So this was, this was an enormous uh, campus to me. Um, oh, wait, let's, let's just do a little shout out, Ing. Uh, what, kind of, what, what campuses do we have? In the room. All right, I heard all of this. Great, awesome. Well, welcome. Who's who said Auburn? Right here. There you go. What's up? Good to see you, Auburn. 
Good to see you. No, dude. I love Auburn. I love you guys. I'm so happy you guys are there. Um, yeah. So, <clears throat> so this morning, uh, we're going to answer two questions because because all of us are really facing the same question. Like, there's this this insurmountable obstacle. I have uh, this massive uh, university, like. And, and I'm just a, a drop in the pail. Like, what, what can I really do to affect change on, on such a large scale, right? And it doesn't matter if your campus is 40,000 or 9,000. Like, it's still bigger than you, right? It's still much, uh, a much larger obstacle uh, than what you can do on your own. So our, our question, we have two questions. So first of all, how does God intend to change the culture on your campus. And when I say your campus, it's really interchangeable with your mission field. Because right now as students, this is your, your sphere of influence. This is your place of life. So this is your mission field. So how does God, how, how does God want to affect your mission field? And then the second question is, who will he do it through? Now, you probably already know the answer to both of those questions, and that's okay. Um, in my experience, we have a lot of the answers already. We have a lot of the knowledge um, but in, in our heads, but really grasping the truth in our hearts is a different story. And so this morning, I just want to, if anything, just impart the truth into your hearts of how and, and who God wants to do this through. So, to start, uh, let's look at Matthew chapter 28, 19. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Matthew chapter 28, 19. Um, so if you have your Bibles, turn there. And I'm going to ask somebody to read. So uh, preferably in modern language. No offense to King James readers, but uh, you got it? All right, what's your name? Evan? Cool, appreciate it. Matthew 28, 19. Yeah, go ahead. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Awesome. All right, so this is known as what? The Great Commission. What makes it so great? What makes it so great is that all of Jesus' strategy, Jesus' entire strategy is wrapped up in this verse. I want you to think about this for a minute. Jesus came, he had three years of ministry, and, and what did he do during those three years? And we have, we have records of like Jesus' miracles, and there's some of Jesus' public ministry where he gets up on a mountain and he just preaches. But, but like, where was most of Jesus' time spent? Or rather, who was, who was it spent with? His disciples. Twelve dudes, right? His disciples. And, and they were, I like to refer to them as knuckleheads, because they were. Like, <laughs> most of the time, they were arguing with each other over position in the kingdom of God. Like, they're completely knuckleheads. But anyway, so Jesus invested three years of his life into these 12 guys, these 12 guys who were willing to follow him. And then <clears throat> uh, the culmination of everything that Jesus did, he imparted and imparted and imparted. Uh, and then he, he gives this commission to his disciples. Now you... Go and make disciples of all nations. Okay? So what I want to argue to you is that Jesus, Jesus' strategy 
was discipleship and nothing else. It was only discipleship. Which sidebar, if, if we're trying to do anything but discipleship, then we're doing it wrong. Because that's not Jesus' strategy. In, in John chapter 17, uh, you know, this is where jo- uh, Jesus is in the garden and he's praying. This is right before Jesus was arrested. Uh, meanwhile, just for information, what were, what were his disciples doing? Sleeping. Because they were knuckleheads. So Jesus was praying. And <clears throat> let me read this to you. This is John uh, chapter 17, verse 4. You don't turn there, but you can if you want. Uh, I love John 17 because Jesus prays for us. John 17. It's really cool. Um, <clears throat> so this is verse 4. Um, I have, he's praying to the Father, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. So, uh, where are we in the timeline? Jesus, this is before he's arrested, before he's crucified, before he's resurrected. Jesus says, I have completed the work that you have given me to do. And then he goes on and says, in verse 6, I have revealed to you to those whom you gave me out of the world. And he begins to pray for those 12 guys, or 11, because of Jesus. Because he was the greatest knucklehead of all the knuckleheads. So, so Jesus, even before he went to the cross, he considered his mission accomplished. Because now he had imparted the kingdom of God into these guys, and now he was going to commission them, commission them to replicate the kingdom of God culture everywhere that they went. So <clears throat> this is the amazing and the powerful and the fragile strategy of Jesus. And why do I say fragile? Because, well, first of all, let me, let me point this out, that uh, did, did Jesus' strategy work? Was it effective? Was it powerful? How do we know that? Here we are, right? We are all here because Jesus' strategy was, was effective. And, and I can prove it to you. Uh, I was discipled by a guy named Matt Carpenter. He is my campus pastor. He was discipled by a man named Dick Schroeder, who is his pastor. Dick Schroeder was discipled by some other guy, I don't know. He was discipled by someone, discipled by someone, discipled by someone. And you can trace my spiritual lineage all the way back to Peter. I believe it's Peter. I don't know for sure that it's Peter, but it's one of the original disciples. I believe it's Peter because I think Peter's the boss. He's the best. Uh, not the biggest fan of John, and if you want to have a conversation with me about it later, I'll talk to you about it. I don't have anything against John, it's just I feel like uh, the, the whole beloved language is just a little, okay, come on, man. Uh, and, and like, John and Peter race to the, uh, to the tomb, and John has to in, inform us that he was faster than Peter, that I got there first. That's completely, uh, anyway. <laughs> I would love to talk to you about it later. I'm being very uh, unserious. So we, we can, every one of us can trace our spiritual lineage back to one of the original disciples. Let that sink in for a minute. But was Jesus's, as powerful and effective as Jesus' strategy was, it was also very fragile. Why? Because what would have happened if those original disciples were disobedient? What would have happened if, if Peter never went out and made a disciple. If none of the disciples went out and made a disciple, 
the message of the gospel, the culture of the kingdom of God, would have died with them. Right? What happens if our generation fails to make disciples? It's still as fragile now as it was then. If our generation misses it, and if we just go through our lives doing church, doing our best and working to earn God's grace and all that stuff, and we fail to make disciples, then the, the true message of the gospel dies with our generation. The culture of the kingdom of God that can only be imparted dies with our generation. So, <clears throat> it worked through discipleship. So how, how do we change the culture? Back to the university. How do we change the culture of an entire university? Through discipleship. It's, that was Jesus' strategy. And, and Jesus' strategy works on such a larger scale than 40,000 people, right? It works for the entire world. So, how does he want to do it? Through discipleship. We can't miss that. So let me ask you guys, what is the culture of your campus? What is the culture of your campus? And when I say culture, I'm talking about what are the things that are accepted? What are the things that are normal? Things that are commonplace? And specifically, what are the things that are a part of the culture that are different than the culture of the kingdom of God? You guys know what I'm talking about? So that's going to be the next question that we're, we're going into. Uh, I want to turn your attention to one of my favorite stories in the Bible, Mark chapter 5. So turn there if you have your Bible or phone or whatever. Mark chapter 5. We're going to read this story together, and then we're going to, we're going to break into uh, small groups, like just on your row. Actually, it'll probably be easier, and we'll just answer a couple of questions. You guys having fun at Salt? Sweet. Yeah. It's been so good this year. It's good every year. Mark chapter 5. So, Jesus' ministry has begun, uh, and now he's, he's going from place to place um, proclaiming the kingdom of God. Okay? So, this is where we pick up the story. This is uh, Mark chapter 5, verse 1. So, they, being Jesus and his disciples, went across the lake to the region of the garrisons. When Jesus got out of the boat, so, this is a place he has never been before. This is a region he has, he has not gone to yet. They've never heard anything about the culture of the kingdom of God, uh, that the kingdom of God is at hand, that it's near. Um, so, verse 2, When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained Hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. All right, pause, because we, we, a lot of you guys probably read this story, but have you really imagined this story? Because this is freaking weird. Like this guy lives in a cemetery among the tombs. He cries out every night. Uh, he's naked. I don't know if it says that in this one or if it's in uh, Luke's account, but he's naked. Um, they try to, to chain him up, and, and he just like breaks the irons off of his feet. So he has like this supernatural strength, right? Uh, imagine living in a neighborhood with this guy, okay? 
imagine like, like this guy lived a couple of blocks down from you. Like your parents would never let you go outside past a certain time, right? Like there would be a curfew. Uh, you got to get home before the crazy guy comes out and starts howling at the moon and takes all of his clothes off and breaks off his chains and starts freaking us out. Okay, so uh, so yeah, weird guy. Um, but he was possessed by uh, by a legion of demons. Verse six. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. So he gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about how many? 2,000 pigs. A lot of pigs. Rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When I read the Bible, I like to just try to imagine what it looked like. I try to imagine how long it took for 2,000 pigs to run down a bank and get into deep enough water where they would drown. Probably took a long time. So the people who were watching this were like, like watching all, all these, and like, so these are people who have lived with this guy, okay? Like, they are afraid of this guy. This guy is bad news. And so, um, this is, to me, this is the most interesting part of the story. Not the pigs, but what's coming out. Pigs is pretty interesting, but... Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this to the town, in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the the legion of demons, sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind. And what? They were afraid. And just pause there and and meditate on this for a minute. So you've grown up with this guy, all right? Like he is, he is the crazy guy in the cemetery. And now for the first time ever, you see him, he's sitting there, he's dressed, and he's in his right mind, and you're afraid. I don't know about you guys, but I would be more afraid of the naked guy ripping the irons off of his hands, like wreaking havoc on my neighborhood, okay? That guy, I can understand being a little afraid of that guy. But you sitting there dressed and in your right mind, I am not afraid of you, right? I have no fear. Uh, what, what do you think has happened here? I'm going to tell you what I think. I think that the demoniac, the former demoniac, had become such a, an, a normal part of their way of life. They just acclimated to... This is how he is. This is how it is here. So that when they saw him dressing in his right mind, in his right state, they were afraid. And they're like, oh, something's off. Something's weird. We don't like this. And then they say, Jesus, will you please go? Will you get out of here? Because we don't like what you're doing. What do you mean you don't like what he's doing? Are, Are you delusional? I think they were. I think sometimes we are too. I think sometimes when we look at our campus, there are things that 
that we have just accepted this is normal. But whenever you hold them up to the, the right state or the right culture of the kingdom of God, like this, this is twisted. This is demonic. How have we, how have we accepted this for so long? So there's a culture. Every one of our campuses has a culture that does not line up with the kingdom of God. Something that, that is not normal and that people have just accepted and it's become a way of life for them. But it's not normal within the eyes of the kingdom of God, through the lens of the kingdom of God. So <clears throat> what we're going to do, um, just on your row or just some of the people around you, like four people or so, um, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you a question. And uh, I want you guys, it doesn't matter if you're from the same campus or not, um, you'll probably all have some of the same answers. Um, but just discuss this. We're going to take maybe three or four minutes to do this. So. Um, here's the question. What are things that you see on your campus that have been accepted as normal that are not in line with the kingdom of God culture? So what are things that you see on your campus that have been accepted? They are commonplace, but, but they're not right in the, in the kingdom of God. Is that clear? Does that make sense? All right, so... Talking time, you guys uh, round up and, and just spend a few minutes um, answering that question.
of impurity and sexual impurity, casual sex, hooking up, when I stands, all that, for sure. Yeah, drinking alcohol. Where uh, one campus has uh, really out there pride parades. Mm. Yeah. I think something that Troy and Albert has in common is this idea of like, don't ask, don't tell, don't step on anyone's toes, like, keep it to yourself. Yeah. So, uh, so like isolation. Sorry, the isolation of uh, not not being vulnerable, not being transparent. What was it over here? Stress and depression. Yeah, not a big one. Stress and depression. Is that is that biblical? Was that is that biblical? No, it's not. Like a misplaced identity, like especially like the grades and colleges and all their sets Good. Yeah, putting, uh, elevating success in school, you know, just elevating above or to an unhealthy place. Yeah. Uh, we mentioned something that Rockford and MCC have something in common is uh, it's almost in a way self segregating. Mm. Um, instead of everyone connecting with one another, there seems to be separate uh, groups based on how we work. Anyone aware of the culture of entertainment? Yeah, it's a. Uh, I think it goes uh, goes hidden, but there are a lot of people who have a very unhealthy relationship with entertainment, right? where you just binge watch things or um, or on your phone for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. 
not engaging and stuff like that. So, uh, step two. This is just the this is the fun part of the question, uh, and and you guys can discuss this briefly in your groups as well. So, what what is at the root of those things? Well, we mentioned drinking, um, and I'll use drinking as an example. Uh, why do people drink? Because when I go running, my when I when I get home, which uh, by the way, I don't go running. <laughs> so this is a hypothetical from the beginning. But uh, hypothetically, if I were to go running and I get home, I'm like, man, I am so thirsty. I need vodka. So we don't drink because we're thirsty, right? Like we, don't, we don't consume alcohol because it quenches our thirst. So why do people drink? Yeah, so maybe, maybe for pleasure. I think a lot of times it's just to escape. Uh, is to escape reality, and, and really that's a perversion of peace. So they're they're looking for peace, uh, but they're settling for escape. Right? They never find it because you always wake up and uh, and still don't have the peace that you're looking for. And so so at the root of, of drinking, you see that there's something spiritual there too. Right? And and at the root of all of these uh, examples that you guys are talking about, there's a spiritual undercurrent. There's, there's something that is at the foundation of those things. So actually, let's just do it together real quick. So um, casual sex, relationships, what do you think could be a, a spiritual root to that? Security, identity. What's that? Acceptance, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, I know this happens a lot in, uh, in like male culture, for sure. I, I think it happens for the, for the ladies as well, but you, you really determine like your own worth based on uh, how good of a person you can get to sleep with you, right? Like, well, I am accepted by someone who you know is really, really cute or whatever, and so that that speaks into my own identity and acceptance, right? Uh, what were some other ones? Stress, anxiety. What's at the root of that? You just said stress and anxiety. <laughs> You're right. What? Yeah. Not trusting in God. There's, there's nothing constant that I can put my faith and my trust in. And so every circumstance, every change just completely throws, throws me off because there's no constancy in my life. Uh, entertainment. I, I use that. I didn't, I didn't use this example, but entertainment. I think with entertainment, there's a lot of escapism in entertainment, right? You get home, you're just so worn out, and I just want to, I just want to disengage for a minute. And so you turn something on, you watch it, and uh, and like we, it's like we take our brains and we're like, I don't want to uh, to take care of my brainchild right now, so I'm going to let my brainchild go sit with a babysitter for a while while I just you know, hang out. So I don't have to think, I don't have to mentally engage, right? And we, we submit our brains to some creepy, crazy babysitters. So, um, and I'm, I'm very serious. <laughs> so, but, but hopefully you can see that in a lot of the things of our culture, on our campuses, there's something spiritual that is not being met, right? There's a counterfeit that's promising like, hey, this alcohol, this can, this can help you to escape, but it doesn't really bring me peace. Because where can peace be found? Where's the only place that peace can be found? In Jesus. 
Where's the only place that identity can be found? In Jesus. Acceptance. In Jesus. Peace. I already said that. Constancy. Someone to trust in who will never fail us. Who is that? Jesus. So, even security of like, uh, when we elevate success and elevate school and all this, like, there's something spiritual underneath that as well, right? Of like, I, I want to make sure that I have secured my future and that I have control and security and I, I can be comfortable or that I won't be seen as a failure for my family or whatever. So there's something spiritual to that. I call this the get at the root game. And it's a fun game to play, especially with people whenever you're listening to someone and they're telling you about you know, what's going on in their lives, what's hard. I, I, want to, I want to listen beyond what they're saying and try to see what the spiritual root is. Because I want to point them to Jesus. Because as a disciple maker, that's my job, is to point them to Jesus. So, this is how all of this works together. We have, we have a culture that, in our mission field that is not in alignment with the kingdom of God culture. How do we change that? Through discipleship. We have to have the perception to see the things of the culture, what's not in line with the kingdom of God. Okay? So, for, so first we have to have the discernment and the perception to see those things. <clears throat> and then we carry a new culture in. We see the bad culture and we replace it with the kingdom of God. So how... Do we do that? And more specifically, going back to our, first, our previous questions, who does Jesus want to do this through? Let's go back to Mark chapter 5. Let's finish our story. <clears throat> so the people, this is verse 17, the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. <laughs> Now, first of all, what was Jesus' point of going to the garrisons in the first place? He went there to go spread the gospel, right? To spread the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand. To heal the sick and all that. Like He went to the garrisons for that very purpose. He never even left the bank. Do you realize that? Like He got off the boat. Oh, a demon-possessed guy ran up to him, fell on his knees. Jesus cast him out. Watched 2,000 pigs run down a steep bank and drown themselves. And then people come from the town, they're like, we don't like this, will you please leave? She's like, right, back in the boat. And he starts going, like, he hadn't even gone anywhere yet. He hadn't left the bank. He's back in the boat. And this man uh, begged, begged to go with him. Begged to go with Jesus. In verse 19, Jesus did not let him. Is that strange to you? At first, it should sound a little strange at first because this is the same Jesus who's going around saying, hey, will you come follow me? All right, will you come follow me? And he's asking everyone, will you come follow me? And now someone is saying, hey, can I come follow you? And Jesus is like, actually, no. Not this time. He did not let him. Why did he not, why did he not let him? Verse 19. He said, go home to your people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. All the people were amazed. 
Why did Jesus get back in the boat? Why did he not say, well, I'm the Messiah and I'm going to just do whatever I want, so go on. I think he didn't have to. I truly believe that. Now he didn't have to. Because now he had an ambassador. Now he had someone who would go in on his behalf and spread the gospel. What are we, Kaiapha? What does this mean for us? 2 Corinthians 5, 20, where we get our name, says that we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though he were making his appeal through us. On your campus, you are Christ's ambassador. It should be, it should be uh, just as if Jesus were walking from class to class when you walk from class to class. Jackson back there, one time in his freshman D group, he led a D group, and uh, he, he asked a question. I always remember this question. He said um, he felt a conviction, like if Jesus were walking across the quad right now, what would he be doing? And why am I not doing that? Because whatever Jesus would be doing is what I should be doing as Christ's ambassador. So, uh, you guys know that, uh, so Jesus' 12 disciples uh, were sometimes called something else. He had a different title that sometimes he used for them or that we refer to them as. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, the apostles, right? Twelve disciples, twelve apostles, we use them interchangeably. The word disciple is different than the word apostle, though. You guys know what the word apostle means? So uh, the word apostle is not a religious word to begin with, okay? Jesus coined it. I mean, he didn't coin it, but he made it a religious word. He borrowed it from uh, the Roman Empire. So turn your brains on for a second, because this is super cool. And, and I just want you to remember this for the rest of your life. This is awesome. It's really changed the way I see this. <clears throat> um, so the, the Romans, the Roman Empire, uh, they had this hobby of going to uh, a place that was perfectly content with how things were and conquering them and trying to <coughs> press their own culture on them, right? Um, so the, the Roman Empire was huge because of this. They would go from place to place and they would just conquer these places and say, all right, well, welcome to Rome. Now you're a part of it. But what they found out was when you go to these places, they still spoke the same languages, they used the same currencies as they were previously. So they, there was a, a, a huge chasm between what a Roman looked like and what this person looked like, what this culture looked like. Because the culture had stayed, right? Even though, you're starting to make connections already, even though it had been conquered, it, the culture hadn't quite changed. So, uh, what the Roman Empire did was they would send entourages of people of culture, culture bearers, people of art, of uh, like who could teach language, musicians, um, fashion designers, I don't know. But they would go into these places and they would just live with them for a while. And they would teach them the language, teach them how to use the currency, teach them how to race chariots, uh, teach them how to play their style of music. So that whenever you went into one of these other places, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to distinguish that from, uh, from the Roman Empire. Okay? So they went and they taught culture. You want to know what those entourages of people were called? 
apostles. But what do you think that means? Jesus, Jesus intentionally chose this word. When he began his ministry, it's like he looked and he's like, you know, the Romans, they have a really good word for this, so we're just going to borrow it. Now, you guys, you are my apostles. I am sending you out as my apostles to go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Think of what that means. <clears throat> you are the culture bearers of the kingdom of God. Now go and teach others how to live in the culture of the kingdom of God. How to live as Jesus lived. Isn't that cool? What does that mean for us? <clears throat> this is how we're going to kind of land our plane today because we're out of time. Um, culture is a big word. And, and it's a long-term word, right? Uh, and sometimes it can seem even like an abstract word. And we can talk about things of culture, but man, to talk about changing a culture, like I have two more years at this university, you know? Like, how can I change the, the drinking culture on my campus? Or, or like the, the stress and anxiety and depression, like how can I really uh, be effective in that? Culture is a big word, so I want to, uh, to just break down into just a few simple steps for you guys of, of how, like, how to leave, go back to your campus, and begin, uh, begin acting as apostles, culture bearers who go into a place uh, and, and teach others how to live as Jesus lived through discipleship. So uh, I'm going to tell you one thing, and then I'm going to tell you four things, and then we're going to be done. Okay? That's a total of five things. So the first thing is this. How do you do it? Step one, live a counterculture life. Live a counterculture life. If you go back to 2 Corinthians, it, in our, uh, our name verse, the Christ ambassador verse, it tells us to to be reconciled to Christ, and then to carry the message of reconciliation. There's two parts to it. We can't carry a message of reconciliation that we haven't first internalized. So we have to be changed. Romans 12.1 uh, tells us not to be conformed to the patterns of this world, but to be transformed by the re renewing of our mind. Um, I like to say it this way, that discipleship uses a pulling motion, not a pushing motion. Discipleship... It, it never works like you're behind someone like, hey, you should go further to Jesus. Go over there, right? Discipleship always uses a pulling motion. We bring people to where we are, where we're going. Like, we grab their hand, and as we're following Jesus, we pull them along. And so, like, we can't talk about, we can't begin to have a conversation about uh, a culture of entertainment that doesn't belong in the kingdom of God whenever we are completely enveloped in that culture. You know what I mean? So we have to live counterculture. Um, so let me, let me just ask you this question. You can write this down and process this later. Are there any normals in your life that are not normal in the kingdom of God? That's how I want you to process this. Are you living counterculture? Are there any normals in your life that are not normal in the kingdom of God? 
So write that down. I want you guys to, to genuinely take time to process that at some point. <clears throat> Whatever, this is what my campus pastor always told me. Uh, anything that God does in you, he wants to do through you. Uh, I also believe that God's not going to do anything through you until it's first happened in you. Okay? God desires these things to happen in you, so live counterculture. All right, so that was the one thing. Now, these are the four things. How, does this, how do you translate this, uh, this new culture through your life? What are some simple steps? And you're not going to remember all these. There are four of them, but you're not going to remember them all. That's okay. Resonate with at least one of them, and then just be intentional in doing it. Okay? Uh, the first one, testimony. You guys have a testimony. Uh, some people say, yeah, but my testimony is super boring. Uh, or I don't have a powerful testimony. Like, I didn't grow up with a, an abusive parent or something like that. Uh, I don't care. The message of grace is, uh, is pretty ridiculous. It doesn't matter where you were. Like, Jesus' saving grace is a powerful testimony. So every one of you guys has a testimony. Um, and you guys will have an immediate opportunity to, to share testimony of who Jesus is, what he has done in your life, um, starting tomorrow. When uh, your parents are like, so how was salt? You could say, salt was great. We had a lot of fun. Or you could say, the real things that Jesus is, oh, sit down, let me open my journal. Let me just tell you some of the things that Jesus has taught me, that Jesus has done in my life. And like, they're going to be begging you to shut up. All right? Or whenever you go back to class and your friends are like, hey, man, how was your break? You can say, oh, it was good. I gained 10 pounds. <laughs> Holiday food. <laughs> or you could say, it was awesome. I went to this conference and Jesus just wrecked my life. And you open up your journal and you just begin to read to them, right? And they're like, all right, that's <laughs> way more than what I asked for. Who cares? I, I'm going to give it to you. All right? So share your testimony. Number two, point everything back to Jesus. Point everything back to Jesus. Make Jesus the spotlight. Whenever you're listening to people, point them back to the truth, right? And I'm just, uh, I'm afraid of what my parents are going to think if I tell them that I feel like God is calling me to be a missionary. Like, I'm afraid of what my parents are going to say about this. All right, well, uh, what, let's talk about the root of that fear. And let's, let's talk about what Jesus says about fear. Let's talk about what the Bible says about fear. And so we begin to bring the culture of the kingdom of God into their lives in that, pointing things back to Jesus. Number three, affirmation. Speak truth over people's lives. Speak true identity over people. And this is a great one that you can practice today. You can find somebody from your campus, one of your friends, and sit down and affirm them. Uh, and, and affirmation is not saying, hey, this is uh, a couple of just great qualities that I like about you. I like the way you dress. You have great hair. And, and never start an affirmation with, when I first met you, I thought you were super weird. But then, because like, that's not affirming out the gate, okay? Uh, speak into the things that you see in them that, that God has placed inside of them. Like, you have such a pure heart. I love watching you worship. I can tell it's genuine, blah, blah, blah. Affirmations. You can do that now. Uh, and the last one is pray for people. We don't pray for people enough. When you're talking to someone, let that always be the end of your conversation. Well, hey, can I pray for you? I, I'm afraid of what my parents are going to think if I tell them I'm going to be a missionary. Man, well, this is what the Bible says about that. Let me pray, let me pray for you. All right? Sweet. God wants to establish the kingdom of God culture through us, through us, through discipleship. Okay? And the strategy works. 
You just have to do it. Okay? Live counterculture and be apostles. Let that culture spread through your lives. Be intentional. Can I pray for you? <laughs> Let's pray. Jesus, I bless everyone in this room, myself included, to be apostles, to be ambassadors. That when we go back to our campuses, when we even go back to our families tomorrow, um, that, that we would begin acting out our apostolic role to bring the culture of the kingdom of God everywhere that we go. Uh, that when we walk, walk around our campus, when we sit at the table with our family, that it would be just as if Jesus was doing that. Um, and that, that we would really be acting as ambassadors for Jesus. So I bless these guys to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.